0: I'm Charles Foster Kane. Hey, Stella!
1: Suck on this. Well, what's going on, everybody? This is Wrong Reel episode 451. I guess I probably should have planned Fahrenheit 451, but we fucked up because today we've got Dave Eves. We're going to be doing Carl Theodore Dreyer, but that's an equally valid topic. And I have to admit, I've never seen Francois Truffaut's Fahrenheit 451, so uh, maybe I'll have to save it for episode 4510. We'll make, make the numbers work out that way. But Dave,
0: welcome back to Wrong Reel. Thank you for having me. I can burn some books if you really want me to in order to stay uh, topical, but I have also not seen Truffaut's uh, uh, Fahrenheit 451. It's one of the few early Truffaut's I've not seen.
1: Yeah, people never really seem to call attention to it, apart from the fact that it's the the famous adaptation of Ray Bradbury's book. But I've seen a hell of a lot of Truffaut from the 60s and 70s, and I just keep delaying that one. I I don't know why. Maybe because I've never met someone who's like, oh my God, that movie's going to change your life. It's incredible. It's one of his best best movies. People always mention like 10 other Truffaut movies first.
0: I feel like it really falls within the gaps because one, it's not like a favorite of Truffaut fans that are looking for his French New Wave stuff. And it's not supposed to be the best adaptation of the book. So it falls through the gaps of the book fans so it, it, it it's kind of i don't know i i'm kind of actually more curious to see it now because it's going to be an oddity within both realms of the uh the filmmaking world
1: i tried watching the hbo adaptation
0: last year and i lasted about 10 minutes before I, it's like thanks but no thanks moving on heard, this is i not heard they me. were making it and i i didn't even realize it was done yet until it like i saw it uh on, on the shelf somewhere at a video store it's like oh
1: what is this? Yeah, I think it dropped into the pond of uh, the ocean of content out there and left very little, uh, a, very, a very small ripple. It had very little cultural impact. But, you know, it's when you ha- when you have these great old fashioned kind of dystopian sci fi books, it's real hard to get it right and make it relevant in 2019. So, mm-hmm. Well, before we get into Carl Theodore Dreyer, let's talk a little bit about you. What have you been up to? What podcasts have you been appearing on? What flicks have you been watching? What are your thoughts on current events, whether it's uh, Steven Spielberg ranting and raving against Netflix or <laughs> the Oscar winners? Like uh, what, just what's going on in your overall movie consumption?
0: Well, I, I will first start off by plugging the new podcast network that I am somewhat part of. I don't have my own podcast. I, I am a, forever a podcast guest. But as you know, James, Aaron West of Criterion Now has teamed up with the Magic Lanterns, Cole Ruland to launch the 25th Frame podcast network. Everyone should be checking it out. It is shock to the brim uh, with film-related podcasts, Criterion Now, uh, like I said, Magic Lantern, uh, Good Times, Great Movies. Ah, uh, John Lobinger's uh, film, baby film, movie silently. If anyone knows her from Twitter, uh, Fritzi Kramer is launching her own podcast I love movie about silently.
1: Movies. Yeah,
0: oh, her, her first episode is fantastic. The movie silently podcast. I just checked that out. So definitely, everyone should check that out. Uh, I have been on a few of the mainline episodes where we're talking about new Criterion releases and just general goings on about film. Uh, Nothing too <laughs> nothing too recent. They did an Oscars episode, but I couldn't join for that. But definitely, uh, definitely something that I feel uh, excited to plug.
1: Yeah, um, I skipped the Oscars entirely this year, and it did not alter my sense of calm in any way, shape, or form. I think I'm just going to skip the Oscars entirely from now on because when I was in college— my obsession with movies had nothing to do with awards or prestige, et cetera. It just had to do with great filmmakers that I'm fucking obsessed with, and trying to maintain that love and that passion. I think as you get older, it's it's like trying to stay in love with like a spouse. You got to find ways to kind of you know nurture the <laughs> garden a little bit. And I I, I, I th- I'm gonna remove the things that annoy me, and I'm gonna uh, emphasize the things that give me pleasure. And so uh, yeah, I'm gonna start looking much more at things at like Arrow Video and Shout Factory and Criterion, focusing on the on the cool stuff going on but is there anything cool on the criterion calendar coming up in the next month or two that's got your criterion fanboy side all
0: giddy oh geez let me actually look at their website to remember I, the one thing that i'm really excited about jackie chan is joining the criterion collection with police story one and two Those are good I, movies. I feel like that's a very bold choice that i'm super excited about um there's a lot of things that uh I, I'm behind on some of their releases because I've been waiting and waiting and waiting for them to do a flash sale, which they typically do in the middle of February, to keep up with things. Um, I am this close to having all of their Blu-rays now. And literally like a couple flash sales and a couple Barnes & Noble sales from now, I will have them all. And I, I can back down and just buy them as they come out. Um, and they are they're trying to make that hard for me. Gotcha. I saw the
1: Blue Velvets coming out in like mid-April or so. That that'll be a big one.
0: Yeah. Oh, end of May actually. That end that is a, a. That was not my first, uh, not first choice. I would not have expected that to be coming out so soon from David Lynch. I know there's been a lot of people wanting uh, Lost Highway from him, myself included. Whereas something like Blue Velvets already had a pretty recent release. Um, but I, I think they're going off of what David Lynch once put out more than anything. I think that he has a lot of creative control over how his films are, uh, Released in a physical media sense and how they are perceived by the population at large.
1: Gotcha. Yeah. Lost Highway always reminds me of the first time I ever got ganged up on by fellow film lovers was over Lost Highway. I showed up for my History of Film Part 2 class in a state of altered consciousness due to herbal jazz cigarettes with the intention of (laughs) saying nothing, doing nothing, just disappearing. And But before class started, they're having a debate about Lost Highway, which had just been released and I was just ignoring them and just kind of in my own little world. And suddenly this girl whirled on me and goes, and I bet you liked it. And I was like, <laughs> "I was like, oh, uh, yeah, I loved it. And the teacher was just sitting there. I was like, well, James, tell us why you liked Lost High. I was like, oh, no, this is going exactly the opposite direction that I wanted things to go. And so I was trying to fumble through this inarticulate, Idiotic explanation of why I liked Lost Highway. I should have just said I think Patricia Arquette's fucking beautiful. All you can go fuck yourselves. But I didn't come up with something <laughs> that clever at the time, and yeah, I just got absolutely ripped to pieces because the entire class just uh, they they all despised the movie. And the teacher said, "Well, I thought the first half hour was borderline brilliant, but the rest
0: was absolutely awful." I was like, "All right." I so bet I, they I, all uh, love it now.
1: That is very true. Twenty years later, twenty-two years later, that movie I think has aged very well. Oh yes. Oh, yes. Well, speaking of something that has aged very well, the career of Carl Theodore Dreyer, a director who doesn't have a huge output, but his career perfectly dovetails with and coincides with the early days of cinema. He's one of the great pioneers. He was working like in the teens doing scripts and titles and so on and so forth and slowly but surely shifted gears into becoming a filmmaker in his own right. And while his output in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, sadly, was pretty thin, in the 20s, he was pretty goddamn busy. And we're going to be focusing today on the early part of his career. Originally, we are going to do a lot of his movies, but with the loss of Filmstruck, I couldn't find his movies from the 50s and 60s for less than a couple hundred bucks. So we decided to focus today on Master of the House from 1925, Passion of Joan of Arc from 1928, and *Vampire* from 1932. But I think that's going to give us more than enough to sink our teeth into. But Dave, for people out there who have never seen a movie by Carl Theodore Dreyer, why is this guy so frequently mentioned alongside people like... Roberto Rossellini, or Ingmar Bergman, or Luis Bunuel. B- well, I feel like there's people like David Thompson, like one of my favorite film historians, when he's talking about the great luminaries, the great pioneers, the like, the, the the creme de la creme, the greatest artist in the history of cinema. He frequently brings up Dreyer's name right alongside any of those giants that you care to mention. Why is it that he's got such an enduring legacy?
0: I, I find it very interesting, because I don't think that he was really, I don't think he really got his due until more recently in the... The eyes of film history. He, I mean, a lot. Of the, two of the three of the movies that we're going to talk today, about today were flops, gigantic flops that caused him to take like a thirteen-year break from movies. And th- this is a guy that, like you said, he was kind of there throughout the beginnings and foundations of building out what movies are. But up until recently, you don't hear him spoken of in the same se- in the same breath that you hear people like. Um, Oh my god! I'm completely blanking on everyone of people at that time. Like uh, do you have too Murnau many Criterion or, filmmakers floating around in your brain? Yeah, I have too many. It's I, that's the thing. I watch too many movies. My brain is, like, is, is like a name Just mess now. any
1: movie, you're like ah oh, ah oh, ah.
0: Oh. Constantly, anytime I'm on a podcast, like I just watch this movie. I know everyone that's in it, but I can't remember a thing about it. Um, One of my favorite <laughs> tweets
1: by you is when you, you did some GIF or some face for when uh, you're trying to explain to people that you watch a lot of movies, and they'll say, "Oh well, have you seen such and such?" So they'll just pluck some random movie out of that. Totally insignificant just like a forgettable movie and you're like it doesn't mean I've seen every movie but I do still watch like lots of movies but
0: I I swear they they think I'm lying then no but but this guy's working alongside people like D.W. Griffith but you see him mentioned as more of like a father of cinema and how that was built out and I kind of feel like Dreyer isn't really ever trying to reinvent the wheel. He's just trying to do his own thing. And when you look back at what he was doing, the things that were considered like, oh, why is this guy making a movie with just close-ups? It's like, oh, that was really cool. That was really interesting. That's bold and new. And looking at it uh, almost 100 years after the fact, you find some really great filmmaking, some really great films, and some things that have really endured and and stayed the test of time.
1: Yeah, I think it helps that... His career coincides with the silent era and obviously I feel like his career was in a lot of ways... I mean, I think, for me personally, my favorite movie by him that I've seen is Ordette in the 50s, but a lot of people would say Passion of Joan of Arc. But in the late 20s, you had the full flowering of the visual language of film as a medium of visual storytelling, where you had movies like Murnau's Sunrise and things like uh, Abel Gance's Napoleon and all these you know, giant masterworks that really showed like the full potential of silent film as an art form. And the fact that Passion of Joan of Arc came along right at that time, and he really got to make his mark. I think his reputation is secure... Until the end of time, as long as people are still projecting images on a wall, they will recognize what he was able to bring to the table, and the fact that Godard, who is a you know no slouch when I mean, it came to being a film <laughs> dork in, in his own right, the fact that he has Anna Karina watching scenes from Passionate Journey of Arc and like openly weeping and being moved, I think it shows that when it comes to cinephiles and film buffs and film historians, this is one of the you know the main architects of just the language of cinema,
0: yeah. And I think it also helps that this guy had a massive career. Like you said, he started working in the 1910s, and his last film is from 1964. That's an insane amount of of time to be working, yet he only turned out 14 feature films, many of which you can't really find available. The the first film that we're even talking about today, Master of the House, is – Nowhere near his first film. He's been working for quite some time, but it's the most commercially available. The only one really before that that you can really find anywhere is Michael. I actually ordered the UK Blu-ray of that just so that I can get more dryer in my brain. Uh, but the, the six but films that we're probably from be Satan's
1: be... book is available on DVD. I've definitely seen that okay. around. And I know that that is basically his homage to Intolerance where you have four different stories and four different eras where he's cross-cutting between them. And obviously today, people are like, well, what's the big deal about that? Who cares? But when Intolerance was made in 1916 or 1917, that was earth-shattering to the language of cinema, the fact that you could tell a, like a, an historical epic about Intolerance in four different periods. So he was still being inspired by uh, Griffith. But I think Griffith in the 20s started to fade very rapidly, and mm-hmm. obviously Dreyer was very much on the ascent
0: in the 20s. I hear
1: that the Parsons Widow from 1920, I hear that's fucking incredible
0: as well. Hmm. I'm going to have to check that one out. Have you seen Michael, Out of Curiosity? I have not. That's one of his German movies, isn't it? Yes. This is also a guy, he's Danish, but he worked, especially in the 20s, all over Europe.
1: But what do you know about his influence when it comes to Victor Sjolström, whose name I can never correctly pronounce, but Sjolström as he was known in America?
0: Well, I know that these two were working side by side and I know that the, uh, the, oh my God, the, 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 not the nurse, the, uh, Salvation Army. Yeah, I guess she is a nurse from, uh, the Phantom Carriage appears in the Master of the House oh, cool. as the, the wife, uh, something I did not realize until I was reading up more into the film. A- a- as far as I know, most of his influence was coming from American movies at the time, kind of that, that, uh. That cross-cutting, kind of building out the language through continu- con- uh, continuous editing, rather than setting the camera up far away and letting everything play out like a tableau, which is so interesting because when you look at his later films, that's far more what he's doing. But in the 20s, he's he's like a young guy just like, oh, let's see how many shots we can get in this film. Yeah, he becomes uh, like, a
1: stylistic innovator. I mean, Especially like in Master of the House, but at one point when uh, the nanny's berating the, the, the central character and calling him all these names and you're getting these crazy intertitles with great big letters, and it, it gets pretty wild I think a lot of times people assume oh if you watch a movie from the 20s it's going to be one of the situations where you're just like watching a stage play where they happen to turn on a camera which is the most boring way to stage a movie although Buster Keaton made a lot of good movies that have that that employ that style as well so well,
0: well there's the old Charlie Chaplin adage that uh I think yeah I think believe it's Charlie Chaplin that comedy is a long shot and drama is a close-up so if you see the same thing from different angles you'll be able to get different emotions out of it and Dreyer was clearly not afraid to get the camera right up in someone's face.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, obviously, yeah. passionate, I think a passionate <laughs> of Joan of Arc is probably the best use of close-ups in movie history. I think it's probably – I mean, it's a movie where they built some huge giant set for some astronomical sum of money, and he proceeded not to shoot any of it and just <laughs> <laughs> kept the camera up in his actress's grill for the entire movie. But it worked. And so. he said, no makeup. <laughs> yeah, no makeup. Yeah, had such a – I'm sure his producers were – Pissed at the time, oh, they but
0: were, it, it created a huge lawsuit. That's part of why, because he wanted to make Vampire the year after Passion of Joan of Arc, but couldn't because he was tied up in legal battles with the loss of money over Passion of Joan of Arc because he built these giant, extravagant sets that were barely showcased.
1: Gotcha. Well, what do you know about his Lutheran background? Because I feel like when we're talking about Danish filmmakers or Swedish filmmakers, this. I think everyone assumes it's a lot of like religious austerity that's going to like imbue the work of these directors. But what are your thoughts on his kind of his cultural background and how it applies to his choice of uh, his, of his topics in his movies?
0: He's definitely one of the one of the more religious filmmakers without being like in your face. It's it's weird. It is kind of in your face, but not like where I feel like I'm being preached to. His films are some of the few religious movies I really genuinely enjoy, like Ordet and Passion of Joan of Arc are as close to religious experiences as I can get not being the most religious person myself. And it's very interesting that he was so religious himself because he was born out of wedlock from uh, an affair between a pastor and uh, – oh my goodness, was it just a a, a parsonage in the, uh, at the church where the pastor was? He was put up for adoption, uh, adopted by parents that – did never made him forget like oh you're adopted you were born out of sin and yet this man who's my adopted
1: daughter margot tenenbaum
0: (laughs) you would think that he would grow up kind of with a disdain for religion and society at large because of how he was treated but he he almost has this very interesting outsider approach to it that allows him to be very genuine uh, about it all,
1: yeah. I know with um Paul Schrader, he wrote that book Transcendentalism in Film, which is all about Ozu, Dreyer, and Bresson, and those like three guys were all like like you know Paul Schrader's main idols as a as a young film goer. And it's when the fact that he's clustered those three together, it's always made me a little nervous about exploring the movies too much. I'm like oh my god, am I gonna get just like a, a, a tidal wave of religious austerity, you know, just like washing over me? But I find Dreyer's movies to be the exact opposite. Of the how his movies like the, the stereotype about his movies they are in, insanely passionate they're incredibly emotional they're not necessarily super plot driven but goddamn if you pop in Passion of Joan of Arc or Vampire and you just sit back it just, they just completely suck you in I had a, a bit of a strange experience with Master of the House because I went and saw climax yesterday the new Gaspar Way movie
0: <laughs> climax the, the exact opposite yeah, of a dryer climax
1: film. is drugs and like bisexual dancers and bloodshed and like public urination and just murder and mayhem and incest and it's just like club music i mean it's just a two-hour roller coaster overwhelming experience and i came in from that and turned on master of the house i was like "Ooh, boy all right we got to shift gears here we got to kind of get into a different mental place in order to get where he's coming coming from and I, i'll admit for like the first 20-30 minutes i was struggling a little bit however once the drama really gets underway i started cracking up like a madman. So for people who have not heard of Master of the House, what
0: is the premise of the story? So Master of the House, which is, uh, I don't want to say bastardization of the Danish title. The Danish title is Honor Thy Wife. I'm not gonna even try to pronounce that in Danish. Uh, it is about a a family, a married family, husband and wife with a few kids, uh, and their daily routine, uh, despite the fact that the husband has lost his business in post-war Europe, uh, he still demands all of the title and air that the master of a house deserves. So his wife is working tirelessly to get his his uh, slippers, make sure his shoes are properly cobbled, make sure his breakfast is ready on time, to the detriment of her sanity and uh, ability to sleep and her well or her her health, uh, so that he can still pretend to be the man that he was when he had that job and he is a grumpy terrible person at the beginning of this movie he is comically villainous to the point where at the beginning it's just like do you want your meat hot or cold tonight cold and then later that night he comes in and says i guess you couldn't be bothered to warm up my meat and i just remember thinking who would ever want cold meat to begin with but this guy is just that much of a of a jerk, that he is going to be the worst person possible. And this is a film, it's not a revenge movie. It's not like they're going up to try to be like, oh, we're gonna teach him a lesson and then leave him by the curbside. The entire premise is that his old nanny, who is still very friendly with the family, and her mother, the, yeah, the wife's mother, conspire to, to get these two back on the right track because they know they love each other very much. So they need to get the, the wife to leave for a bit so that he can learn more about what she goes through in her daily life and respect her again. And I think that that is such a mature and interesting path, rather it's than. It's almost just like again. a
1: children's book where like a child needs to learn like to clean their room, like no, all right, it's like like you know, it'd be like if you have like a, a book for five year old kids where a child is always misbehaving and assuming his mother's going to clean up behind him, and then one day the mother goes away for a couple of days, and the child learns the value of having his meals prepared and you know his clothes cleaned, etc. But, yeah, but he's a grown ass man. But he's a grown ass man. He's like fifty years old and just mean and surly. But it's so simple. And but so moving and by the end, I mean, it's almost like this incredibly heartwarming af- uh, 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 affirmation of, you know, like the family as a unit, et cetera. And just it, I, I found that the ending so incredibly satisfying as he slowly but surely comes around. Yeah. And it's just, just a radical transformation from this ogre becoming an attentive, loving, appreciative husband
0: again. And you hate him so much at the beginning. You do not you cannot imagine that by the end of the movie you'd be like, Oh, I hope his wife comes back. I hope they stay together. You'd be like, No, 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 ditch that guy. Go go live your life in 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 Copenhagen and be be awesome. But no, these two should be together, but it just takes some some repairing to get there. And I think that is a bold statement. And this is also I, I feel like very ahead of its time. It's a very feminist approach. A lot of Dreyer's work is about women living in a male run society oppressed by men and and this is is definitely within the lines of what he's used to working in and really again another big part of his 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 uh his thing his filmmaking approach is sh- to show daily life and show people living within their environment uh and he's all about like building sets that work that connect being able to explore that space making people know the space exists it seems real like uh the stove at the center of the house or the center of the living room is used for cooking meals, for heating up slippers, for heating the house. It's It, it makes practical sense. It, it's almost documentary-like in that sense of realism.
1: And we get a lot of the great kind of classic dryer close-ups in this. I mean, some of my favorite shots. The nanny, while well, initially he kind of resists because – 30 years ago she wielded like limitless power over him. He slowly <laughs> but surely starts to kind of fall back into the habit of doing as he's told. And there's so many great scenes of her just like looking through like a door that's slightly ajar like a great close but she just it's causing her pain to have to discipline him, but she definitely recognizes that he's like a spoiled petulant child who needs a few spankings in order to remember how to behave. And there's this great bit where I guess at one point she says um uh, she reminds him of the thrashing she gave him as a kid, and how it did him a lot of good. And he blows smoke in her face in response. She just whoosh, just smack, <laughs> smacks him then and there, and like just seeing the dawning horror like blooming on his face as he realizes he's gonna have to do household chores like laundry and looking after himself. It was uh, once again it becomes like this great little social satire, and I was just I was cracking up.
0: This is a film that you really wouldn't expect to be so comedic, especially like this. This is uh, I, I assume for you that, that this is probably one of the later, drier films that you saw. It certainly was for me. Oh, I'd never seen I it seen. prior to
1: preparing for this. So.
0: Yeah. So, uh, but, but having explored his other films, yeah, he, he's, he's not completely humorless, but he definitely is Spartan, austere, all those things you always yeah, hear about Dett him.
1: Or debt is not uh, okay, no, a laugh-a-minute comedy by any <laughs> stretch of <the> imagination.
0: <laughs> Nor nor is Passion of Jonah.
1: Nor Day of Wrath or any of these. I mean, yeah, these, these yeah. are these are kids, they can be a little grim.
0: Yeah. But this is this is pretty lighthearted uh, once it really gets going, especially once the wife leaves and the uh the caretaker it's Mads, that's her name. Once Mads kind of takes over, it definitely you, you you feel that lightheartedness, you feel that comedy come in, especially seeing this this, this brute suddenly be torn down to size by this little old lady.
1: Well, she, there's a great scene where she's got a riding crop in one hand and she's chastising them in these, these big giant bold titles on the screen. She says, you men are all like arrogant, selfish, Stupid, like, and each one is like a different title card, <laughs> and she's just <laughs> hammering this message home. Yeah, she's just a little force to be reckoned with. She's such a she's just a, a loving little tyrant who's going to be very cruel in the short term in order to create family harmony in the long term, and and it works. It's like it's it's in a lot of ways, it's like a Hollywood feel good movie, like Mrs. Doubtfire or something like that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I would love to see the remake uh, where where Mads is played by a man in drag absolutely no it would it would totally work and i think for
1: anyone who thinks a dryer is nothing but you know women being burned at the stake or <laughs> va- vampires and their servants you know being uh, you know sl- like plaguing small villages this will be quite a shock considering what we think about us later i've never seen gertrude i hear gertrude's amazing but it's from what i read it sounds like gertrude might have a little bit more in common with these early 20s movies as opposed to the films that he's more famous for
0: <coughs> bless you <clears throat> oh, I felt that sneeze coming the entire time you were talking. I was like, Just get it out. Get it out of the system. No, it, it, he definitely has this very weird ca- career trajectory where he's starting with these intimate family dramas, then moving into slightly more epic things, slightly more surreal things, and then eventually looping right back around to showing the dynamics of the family. And this is very much a fly on the wall type of situation where you feel there. Whereas if it was being shown from far away, you might not feel like you're part of the family, like you're the fifth uh, unspoken of family member just looking back and forth at the the barbs and and uh, hits that are going around, going on around you. Um, and I also think it's very interesting. It's almost like that uh, uh, Christmas Carol type of redemption story where uh, the husband's probably understood to a degree, about two-thirds of the way into the movie. If the wife came back then, they'd probably be okay for a little bit, but he might fall back into his habits. But they really need to hammer the point home. And his wife who, who was actually away at an institution because the second that her, her housework stops, they say that it was like the, the one thing binding her, her fragile mental state together. Suddenly she becomes very ill.
1: Yeah. That sense of purpose was keeping her going.
0: Yeah. Yeah. The purpose was keeping her going. And there's the question of, Oh, is she going to make it back? Will she even want to come back? Even if he is redeemed, but she comes back and she's in with it, with her, with her mother and the caretaker, they have her hiding in a cabin and she's kind of watching to see exactly how much he's changed. And that's, that's when that, that great thing, like, Oh, all men are alike and uh, Mads even makes uh, the husband stand in the corner so that there can be the reveal that the wife is back. And it's this this great like, okay, we're, we're not going to let this guy get off easy. He's got to really make sure the lesson's learned.
1: Absolutely. It was that old expression "This is going to hurt me a lot more than it hurts you, but it all comes from a place of love. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought it was absolutely thrilling. I mean, it's not if he had only made this in the 20s, he would not be looked back upon as one of these giant, uh, cowering icons of international cinema. But it's a great supplementary film. If you're already a fan, and you've kind of run, because he did, didn't make a lot of movies, if you're already a fan and you want to just explore more of his work, it's great to see what he was, where he was on his way to The Passion of Joan of Arc, which is in, only three years later, 1928. But with Passion of Joan of Arc, he really makes that big jump from Good filmmaker to one of the legends, and maybe before we get into the movie and his approach to it, maybe we should create kind of set the table for where Joan of Arc was at this point in her career. Because I, until a few weeks ago, I knew jack shit about Joan of Arc, but then mm-hmm. I listened to uh, History on Fire, uh, Danieli Boyelli's brilliant history. Po- he did a three-part podcast, or maybe actually it was a four-part podcast, with the history of Joan of Arc. And granted, she had a very short life; she only lived to be nineteen. But the amount of detail that he was able to put in there, like I, I know if someone asked me to summarize the Hundred Years' War, I would really struggle to get through a lot of it. But I had no idea just how far the Brits had gone and basically having complete and total control over France as a country and those with Joan of Arc and the momentum she was able to help establish that the French basically were able to reclaim their country entirely. And so when I saw this movie like 20, 22 years ago for the first time, I didn't even appreciate what it meant for Joan of Arc to be in the hands of English inquisitors who were creating this mock trial, try, basically trying to find any excuse possible to put her to death. Now I actually have some appreciation because they had won, they had destroyed their old enemy and taken over. And if not for Joan of Arc, Britain would be a much bigger country today.
0: Yeah. No, I I am not by any means a history buff in this sense, but I know that Joan of Arc is a huge figure within French culture, a, a huge cu- figure within Catholic culture, uh, two things that Carl Theodore Dreyer was not. He was neither Catholic nor was he French, and there was a lot of outrage that he had been chosen to make this picture because uh, Joan of Arc...
1: Holy mackerel. Is that when your kiddie's throwing up a book?
0: Probably. Do you mind if I go check out whatever that was yeah, go Yeah, go,
1: go, check, go check it out.
0: We're good. We have a brick holding up one of the uh, bedroom doors so the cats don't accidentally lock themselves in there. And they knock the brick over. Oh,
1: gotcha. Well, as, uh, as I was reading about what you're just referring to, it actually reminded me a little bit of like today's uh, kind of manufactured artificial outrage culture surrounding like big franchises. that People are like, that's not my Star Wars or that's not my Star Trek or that's not my blah, blah, blah. But here you have people who are saying that because he's neither Catholic nor French, that I think um, someone by the name of John Jose Frappa said, whatever the talent of the director, and he has it, he cannot give us a Joan of Arc in the true French tradition. And the American star cannot be our Joan. This is when they thought it was actually gonna be a different actress. Cannot be our They thought Lillian
0: Gish was gonna be brought in. It was a rumor that had been started.
1: She she must be wholesome, lively, shining with purity, faith, courage, and patriotism. To let this be made in France would be a scandalous abdication of responsibility. So it just shows, yeah, the more things change, the more they stay the same, nearly a hundred years ago, people were still having arguments about the appropriate take on certain franchises and movies.
0: Yes. So, so as, as I had said, Joan of Arc had just been canonized by the Catholic Church. So this is like at the height of Joan of Arc fever probably in the gotcha. 20th century. Um, and, and someone that... Everyone in French culture was revering. And here we go. We have this uh, Lutheran Danish filmmaker jumping in. And he did a lot of research to try to get it right. And he's actually going against the the real transcripts of her trial in order to make this as accurate as possible. And this movie, it, it almost feels like a true crime story because that's kind of what it is. You're taking the actual transcripts, even though her, her – her, uh, her inquisition took place over like 18 months. Here it's pictured as taking place over one day, uh, one really grueling day. I can't imagine her going through this for 18 months. That must have been horrible. But uh, well, that was it's the taking, goal. They wanted
1: to wear her down and get her to try and... They were trying to make her say something that would be considered blasphemous that would give them a green light to do what they had planned on doing all along anyway.
0: Exactly. And you, you see that kind of within this this context as well. They're trying to to take her, this person who who by all means, might just be mentally ill, but it's how really making you, you as, <laughs> but it, it's taking you as a viewer, regardless of your religious background and making you believe, yeah, this, this person is right in doing what they're doing. I'm not French. I'm not Catholic yet at the end of the film, like how, how could they do this to this hero, this person that is truly guided by moral justice, that is trying to help her people that is trying to do the right thing. It'd be like the Brits rounding up our founding fathers and burning them at the stake. Yeah because they, they, they wore women's clothes. I don't know. I don't think any of the founding fathers, you know, they're taking J. Edgar Hoover and burning up at the stake. But also like
1: it, only 25 years after her death when she was burned at the stake there was an in, inquisitorial court authorized by Pope Calixtus Third, and they examined the trial. They debunked the charges against her, pronounced her innocent and immediately declared her a martyr. So you would think it's one of those things where, oh, it takes us centuries to realize what a horrible atrocity this was burning her alive for something that was totally, uh, you know, she's just fighting for the freedom of her own people, but it's, it's actually a rare example of where it only took like a little bit of time before people realized this was a complete, total sham trial, and everyone was in the wrong, and yeah, so it just, she might have been misguided, she might have been mentally ill, or who knows, maybe she did have divine inspiration, we will never know, but mm. yeah, it's it's just an absolute tragedy that was done to her, and apparently when you when you read the actual transcript, according to Daniele Boyelli, just out of her own innocence and purity, but also just the strength of her beliefs. She would say these things that were so profound and so wise, you could see the inquisitors kind of tripping over their own feet and almost like sometimes having to like kind of catch themselves like, oh my God, what she just said, that's fucking incredible. All right, we got to kind of regroup. We got to, re-. but it's like 20 or 30 guys who were constantly strategizing and organizing against her, where she's just one person who day in and day out, getting more tired, more frustrated, more beaten down. It's actually incredible that she lasted as long as she did.
0: Yeah, I think it also goes to, to say something that these are people that are trying to find fault with her from a religious background. These are these are religious scholars. These are the the best and brightest, and yet she is more religious, more sanctimonious than they could ever be. At the age of 19, as a woman in a society once again very male driven, and I think it also says something that it's it's 30 men ganging up against a a, a teenage girl trying to, to make her admit fault in what she's doing.
1: I mean, that's one thing about Bill Yelly goes into over and over and over again, like the idea of a teenage girl living in the field with thousands of soldiers in the 1400s and how she wasn't, some, and somehow avoiding being just like raped and eviscerated and like eaten alive by just savages on a daily Like Her entire story, it truly is one of the most awe-inspiring chapters in all of uh, european history and i just feel like kind of an idiot that i've been neglecting it and ignoring it as long as i have but for people out there who are curious look up on itunes history on fire danielle I mean, he's one of the best historians out there he has this outrageously thick italian accent but he does it in english <laughs> but the accent makes the history so delightful and he does like chapters on like roman gladiators and all kinds of good shit. but his uh, his piece on joan of arc was particularly gripping Start digging into the movie itself because, as you mentioned before, this is a movie largely told exclusively in close-ups. Very few titles, but what I just learned is that apparently we're we're looking at the outtakes. Like the original
0: movie was totally lost. He kinda, nope, this this is actually the original movie. It was found in a mental institution. When was it? In the eighties. I thought uh, that I- was a complete
1: print. of... Of what was – because in 1981, the the film was found in the um, Galstad Hospital Mental Institution. But apparently after completing the original cut of the movie, he learned that the entire master print had been accidentally destroyed. So with no ability to reshoot, he re-edited the entire film from footage he had originally rejected.
0: So what we see is actually (coughs) his masterwork. Because what happened – the chain of events and the the destruction of this movie, which happened over many different decades. First, he, he finished it. Then he had to give it over to France and they said, Oh, we gotta cut this, we gotta cut this. Then they gave it over to the church, and they cut more out of it, and he was not happy with this. Uh and audiences didn't like it. Uh critics seemed to like it, but audiences did not. Then it was destroyed, then it was found to be gone. So then he had to rework it for further showings from the outtakes. Gotcha. Based on the notes from the, the state and from the church. Uh, And then that further, especially like in the 40s, when when silent films were kind of really out. Silent films are awesome, by the way. Everyone should watch silent films. They are amazing. But at the 40s, after the advent of Sound, there was this huge movement against silent films. Like, why would we ever want to go back and watch these? Similar to uh, when Ted Turner tried to colorize black and white movies in the 80s, trying to erase this part of film history. He said
1: if Orson Welles had known how important Citizen Kane was going to be, he would have made it in color. Yeah. <laughs> Ted Turner.
0: So, uh there is hold on. I'm going to I have Wikipedia open cuz I was never going to get all the names correct, but the for the longest time the existing version wasn't even his second cut. It was the what is this dude's name? The Laduca cut, which is taking excerpts from the second version of alternate takes. Cutting out the intertitles, adding in subtitles, and adding in narration, in order to make it more palatable for modern viewers at the time. Yeah, like Charlie Chaplin months. City
1: Lights. He, and not, sorry, not City Lights, with uh, Gold Rush. He Gold added Rush. in voice, voiceover narration over Gold Rush. But because that's the version I've seen more than the other, I'm embarrassed to admit, I actually, when I watched the Gold Rush, I watched the one with the voiceover, even though it totally betrays the fact that it's a fucking silent movie.
0: But it's what you're used to at yeah. the same time. Yeah. But the, the version that, uh, in *Vive to that Anna Karina is watching, Watching on the screen is the Laduka cut is my understanding. Interesting. Because for the longest time that was the only version that existed. And I have the, the U.S. Criterion release, which only has the original cut, which has been restored. Uh, but I know that there is a UK version for Masters of Cinema that has the original cut. The, the second cut, which was based on Uh, the alternate footage and the Ladoka cut which is using the voiceover so I I kind of want to get that so they can compare all the versions Um, but instead I always just go back and watch the uh, the one played at 24 frames a second with the voices of light score because I love that score so much
1: now what was being cut from the film during his initial censorship process like with the church and the French government what were they removing in particular
0: that's a good question I should have looked into that yeah. more. I am not exactly sure if there was anything. If they were too—they aff- must have been offended by stuff. I don't know exactly how many minutes were left out.
1: I think it was the portrayal of the soldiers that a lot of people objected to in certain territories. The, like in Britain, they had to remove yeah, those it scenes. It was banned in Britain because
0: yeah. they thought that it was like—they they, uh, aligned it to the Roman soldiers uh, cheering on the death of Jesus as he was being marched to the cross.
1: But it's like, y'all did— Burn her hey, alive. You're the bad guys so, in this. Yeah, exactly. It's like <laughs> burned it, her. Yeah, you fucking killed her. So suck it up. Take your medicine. Yeah, <laughs> yeah just 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 take it as it is. Um, um, so, so, so before his French premiere, several cuts were made by the order of the Archbishop of Paris and by government censors. Dreyer was angered by these cuts, but he, as he had no control over them. But I'm not seeing him in my notes any specific reference to what was used or what was removed during those. Yeah. So sadly, I just don't know.
0: I bet if I were to track down that Masters of Cinema version that has the uh, the second alternative version, I'd be able to see kind of what's different about it.
1: Because it's not a very long movie. It's like if you start cutting all these giant scenes out, I mean, the movie's barely like feature film length to begin with. I mean, you rip right through it. It's over like 75 minutes long or so.
0: Well, part of that is because of the frame rate that it's typically played at. It's meant to be played, I believe. Oh, and actually, no, there's a huge debate as to what frame rate is supposed to be played at. Gotcha. Because um, silent films were not shown typically at 24 frames per second. Or, yeah, 16, that is, Yeah. Usually 16 to 20, somewhere in there. So I know that the criterion has it presented at two different frame rates. And when you change it from 24 to 20, it increases the length to almost two hours just by adding four more – reducing the frame rate by four frames per second greatly increases the length of the film Um and there's this whole debate with silent films as to what rate they should be played at. A lot of times, silent films would be overcranked so that the
1: oh, it's, as a kid, I remember seeing like 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 basically cars and like Keystone Cops like running around this manic rate. I'm like, this is ridiculous looking. And it was only when I got to college that I finally learned. Oh,
0: you're playing at the wrong fucking speed. That happened after the silent film area because projectors could only do 24 frames per second then. But even in the silent era, they would like crank it up to like 30 frames per second so they could fit in an extra show each uh, night.
1: Gotcha. It reminds <laughs> me of when I was doing an episode about a sound of music for uh, Nick Nadell, how there was a Korean exhibitor who was feeling particularly entrepreneurial. And he realized he could get a lot more show times of sound of music in, in his theater per day if he just cut out all the musical numbers. So people <laughs> were going to see the sound of music with no music, just watching the story. And so it was kind of done by like an hour or so. But I think people, they didn't know what they were supposed to be seeing, so they didn't miss it, at least upon those initial viewings.
0: Yeah, In, in the case of Dreyer, for the, uh, oh my goodness, I just had him up here. What What is that one that, that we were talking about that's supposed to be very good? No, that you had seen. It is, forgive me for being unprepared, at this thought that just came leaves it from Satan's book has scenes with Jesus Christ himself. And he walked into a theater when that was being played at an absurd frame rate. And he got so mad because he said it, it seemed like Jesus was dancing across the screen instead of walking with purpose.
1: Jesus Christ, superstar, baby. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> little did he
0: know that that's what people really wanted to see from their Jesus movies.
1: Well, let's talk a little bit about the technique employed in this flick, because while it is famous for its close-ups, it has a lot more going on in there as well. I think one of the most astonishing sequences for me is there's a scene where Joan of Arc is being threatened with torture, and you have this astonishing montage of these spinning wheels of spikes. And I feel like if you have not seen these kind of sequences before. You kind of don't even really get what silent movies are all about, but this is like, whether you're talking about Fritz Lang or F.W. Murnau or whomever, this is like the essence of silent movies as, as, a, as, as a visual art form. And it just creates a certain emotion that... I love movies a dialogue. I'm, I'm a big fan of story structure and dialogue and all those wonderful things. But when you just completely surrender over to the emotion of the juxtaposition, juxtaposition of all these images, it just it gives you a different experience. And this is the basically the zenith of this of this type of storytelling.
0: Yeah, just seeing like you're you're, you're panning through all these saws at these very interesting little angles. And this movie is so so again to use the word Spartan because that's his style. You have faces and silhouettes against very white backgrounds, which were actually pink in order to make them stand out against the, uh, the, the gray faces of, of the, uh, of the actors gotcha
1: yeah there's a bunch of ugly motherfuckers in this movie because oh, no one had makeup yeah. they wanted
0: to see all the warts and lumps on everyone and the inquisitors were shot with high contrast just so you could see every single crack in their faces whereas joan was shot with uh with much more uh soft lighting well, when you and, think and of silent
1: sh- movies you always think of like that crazy black mascara and like the exaggerated makeup and the exaggerated features it's almost like reverse blackface where like you would really have almost like football eye makeup it was, it was crazy what, how much makeup would be applied to the actors but it's totally absent in
0: this. Look look at, like, Emile Jannings. I have no idea what that guy actually looks like. Because yeah. in every movie, he looks completely different. He could probably play a little boy in one movie and an old man in the next. Be like, oh, that was the same guy? Yeah.
1: But even like in like Charlie Chaplin movies and Buster Keaton movies all his like eccentric all these eccentric like supporting players they looked completely garish and like they looked like gargoyles they had so much fucking makeup on but yeah people here the the camera is unkind to their appearance
0: it's also very helpful to make people's eyes stand out to have that kind of line of mascara so you can really separate between the eyelids and the whites of their eyes but in this it it works somehow and part of that is because Maria Falconetti who is I think this is the greatest film performance of all time. This is only like her second and last movie. She was a comedic actress from the stage who didn't even want to do this and had a horrible time making it. Uh, her eyes are just wide and so full of emotion the entire film. Uh, and, and that's really what sells the scenes. like the scene of torture that you were bringing up, just seeing that spinning wheel, seeing the saw, seeing all these torture devices. She's never actually tortured in the scene, yet for some reason you feel as though you've been through everything everything. And I want to know what horrible things that wheel would have actually done. I I can only ever see that being used to murder someone, not to extract information. Anyone that gets close to that is just going to bit someone's
1: insurance. arm in there and just like, kind of grind it up a little bit and then uh, yeah, I guess whatever's a, in there they have to just like hack it off at that point because you probably can't like unwind it and like get your arm back out.
0: <laughs> i'll Put it in reverse Uh, And in even that scene, like she she becomes ill after that just from seeing that torture and they have to do a bloodletting scene where they actually got someone like, hey, who who, puked?
1: I can watch. I can watch weird shit. I mean, I've seen many an offensive, inappropriate movie that shows very graphic content. But when something's and they use a body double for this. But when something's real, like if I get my fingerprint fingerprint to the doctor, I nearly faint. Like I can't handle doctor shit. And when you see them squeezing the blood out of that vein, and all, oh god, I, I I I could feel my bile rising up.
0: You got to get your bile's back in order. baby. we need to do some bloodletting for you. Absolutely, put some leeches on my eyeballs and yeah, get, get, get
1: my bodily humors back in their regular state of uh, you know equilibrium.
0: Then, then you'll be ready to be burnt at the stake. Absolutely.
1: Yeah, if you're gonna go gonna go down, go down in style. But there's, I mean, there's maybe I feel like there's no movie that's probably elicits more pity from the audience when they're shaving her hair off and her hair is sticking to her face because of all of her tears. And this is once again all technique and historical importance aside, this movie's just got so much emotion. And I feel like whether you're a four-year-old child or an 80-year-old film connoisseur, it's the emotions of this movie that you're going to respond to. Mm -hmm.
0: And... Like even beyond all that, that we like it's it's so pared down. I feel like that's a big part of Dreyer's style. Like, okay, let's see what we can take away and still make it work and somehow that makes it work better. Even in his later films, he's he would go through the sits and be like, No, we don't need this. We don't need that. And here you have faces against a white background, and yet there's still some some sort of magic there. there. There's a there's a shot where Joan of Arc it's fairly early on in the movie where where they're trying to convince her to to sign that that she's a heretic that she lied about everything. And there's just sun going through a window creating the shape of the cross on the ground. And she's like, no, no, God is still out there. God is still with me. And it's creating this sense of like you could really see it either way. Either there's genuine religious. Uh, interference here upon her that she's actually guided by God or she might be maybe a little bit mentally ill in either case she did not deserve the treatment brought to her but it's being yeah, the done victories with, were still
1: victories irrespective of what was what was inspiring her yeah
0: and and, and despite the fact that his next film is loaded with special effects there, there's nothing really that special effect of this aside from <laughs> maybe burning a, a body at the stage
1: so fucking convincing it's yeah. like Ken Russell's The Devil's has a great burning at the stake scene. This one's got one got one that's right up there with it. And I love during that sequence where they start worrying about like the public kind of rising up. And you get this cool bit, and you see this a lot in silent movies, like Abel Gantz did this a lot in Napoleon, where you'd almost like put a camera on a swing. Or like um, F.W. Yeah. Murnau does this in uh, Last Laugh, where you just swing the camera like... Just like, like, a, like an actual like, child swing, but they're dropping these flails yeah. out of a window, and the camera's swinging back and forth. I was like, that is so fucking wild and so self-conscious, and you just never see that those kind of weird camera movements at all anymore. They always are much more kind of smooth and controlled. And I just love the fact that they're like, no, fuck it, we're just going to swing the camera like a, like a madman. But it captures the, I guess, the, the motion of how those weapons are employed once they actually are used in combat.
0: It, it feels surprisingly modern as well, because I, I, I think the general perception of silent movies is we're going to put the camera like 30 feet away from the actors, lock it down, walk away, and let them do their thing. Yep. And throw in some intertitles. This is a fast-paced, moving movie. And it's... You you could get whiplash watching this thing. It's so quick, especially with those swinging scenes and the fact that as she's being burnt to the stake, that the tensions are so high that you really feel like a war is going to break out right then and there on this lavish set that he had built that actually connects to each other. Like like we said before, that even though this film is all shot in close-up, he wanted – this to feel like a real place that people could walk through. He, he said his, his explanation to his financiers were that's how I'm able to get the faces to look so realistic because they feel like they're really in a place. There's no there's no artifice here. It's all true. It all feels real.
1: And he wasn't afraid to use a lot of non-actors, which we'll be getting to in *Vampire*. But quick question. When was the Battle of Agincourt? Was Henry V's Invasion of France part of the Hundred Years War? Because I'm embarrassed to I admit, mean, I have no. It was that 1300s, like maybe a hundred years before this, or when the hell did
0: that all go down? You have reached the limit of my knowledge of the Hundred Years' War right then and there.
1: Yeah, I mean, the Hundred Years' War, man, obviously, it's a big, long war, and it wasn't always constant, but obviously, there's a, a lot of chapters, but it's my understanding is that we're basically now discussing the final chapter in the Hundred Years' War, which kind of left things precisely where they were at the, <laughs> at the beginning. It feels like France and Britain fought each other tooth and nail, basically, for like a thousand years, and it wasn't until the 20th century that they finally, like, you know what. Maybe we can take a break from killing each other constantly, because basically up through the time of Napoleon, they were always finding excuses to go to war over something. Yeah. And now they're friends. Yeah, I guess, I guess, yeah, to to a degree. They got the channel. You can hop on the train in London and pop out in Paris, so you got to get along to a degree to have the channel. Exactly. Exactly. Well, any final thoughts on the passion of Joan of Arc before we move on? Because obviously, when it comes to, whether you're talking to cinematographers or filmmakers, whatever the case might be, this is... One of those movies like Persona or like Eight and a Half, like Citizen Kane, that when it comes to top 10 lists are the most important films in film history, no matter who you're talking to, if they know anything about film history, this is a movie that comes up quite a bit. So I want to make sure you have an every opportunity to share your love for this particular film.
0: I, I I absolutely love this movie. It, it is one that I've seen maybe more than... I, I may have seen this movie more than most of other movies I've seen. And I remember the first time I saw it was in a European history class... Or Euro, European cinema class in college. One of the first uh, big European cinema movies that I had seen. Uh, and I remember the professor saying, like, it's silent. It's all close up. And the entire room is just like, oh, boy, can we suck. watch something else? And even I was among them. And by the end, I was... Enraptured by it. It is so good. I I, I was sad that in preparation for today, uh, in all my other research, I was like, oh, I hope I have an extra 80 minutes to just watch this again. It is that good that you can watch it on repeat, and it's amazing every single time you watch it. If you have not seen it and you've listened this far to the podcast, sorry we spoiled that she dies. You probably should have known that already. But watch it right away. It is it is so Good. Yeah,
1: believe the hype. It lives up to its reputation and I feel like there's, you know, there's anywhere from 10 to 100 movies that are the building blocks of the language of cinema as we know it and basically just the the, the backbone of international cinema and this is right there at, at like the core of the most important movies ever made. And it's it's very easy to get carried away with hyperbole but I don't think you can overstate the case in terms of what this movie has meant to so many, so many great people who've gone on to have incredible filmmaking careers of their, uh, in their own right.
0: Agreed. And again, amazing that this was such a flop. And I think a lot of just, like we said, the, 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 the fanboyisms, <laughs> not that they're really fanboyisms back toxic then. Toxic fan well, culture. The toxic what? fan culture destroyed this, this movie. So much and its, mansplaining. And
1: its yeah, Carl Dreyer was mansplaining the story of Joan of Arc and the French... Objected. <laughs> he
0: he was he was Lutheran splaining. Yeah,
1: exactly. He was Lutheran splaining. Well, let's shift gears to his next movie, Vampire, which is one of the most unusual, groundbreaking, distinctive, original horror movies ever made. And unlike most vampire movies, it actually manages to carve its own path with its, with its own lore. Like for me, I took a Slavic folklore class at UVA as a second year, and there's so many different variations on the vampire mythology. I think it's a crime that so many of our vampire movies basically all go back to the same source material of Bram Stoker's Dracula in terms of what we think of as vampires. And I like it when vampire mythology gets a little stranger and goes back to its roots a little bit more because there's a lot of variety in terms of how you can portray vampires. And we're so locked in on like vampires don't exist. So you can make them whatever the fuck you want them to be. Like filmmakers should feel like the ability to have some creativity and flexibility and I think Dreyer, here with he the Vampyr, made one of the most interesting horror movies of the 1930s, if not ever.
0: Yeah, I agree. People are very weird when it comes to vampires because there's such a stringent set of rules. Yeah. And th- this is trying to just invent its own rules and ignoring rules that don't benefit the story. Um, but I- I'm sure we'll get, get into that as we discuss it.
1: All right. So for people out there who have not seen *Vampire*, what is the, the gist of the story? Where did the story come from and what's going on? Because it's, it's quite unusual.
0: It is. It, it is loosely based on a novella from a book series called In the Glass Darkly um, by Nicholas D. Gunsberg. Oh, no, that's funded by Nicholas D. Gunsberg. Sorry. It's it's J. Sheridan Le Fanu's collection of supernatural stories. And it's it's incredibly loosely based. He basically just takes a framework and says, OK, I'm going to make a vampire movie out of this. And up until almost the end of the movie, it's like, I don't even know what to call this. Uh, it was going to be like the, the, the journal or the strange dream of, of Alan Gray or... Uh, something like that until he decided, oh, I'll just call it Vampire. It's a cool title, uh, and he was inspired. He he had. He had liked this story idea and started trying to immerse himself in all these mystery stories and noticed a bunch of common trends like doorknobs turning without knowing who's on the other end and shadows moving in the dark and said, oh, that's fun. Let's make a movie on that. And this really feels like a shoestring production, almost like he's just gathered a bunch of friends over for a weekend and decided to shoot this thing in, like, his haunted old house that he found. And it's so cool for of And the most important ingredient
1: – find a rich eccentric who has dreams of being an actor who's willing to finance (laughs) the whole movie as long as he gets to play the starring role. But if I hadn't known that the lead actor financed the movie, I wouldn't have, he's, he's not, he's not a weak point in the movie. He actually does a pretty goddamn good job. So when it comes to wealthy eccentric entrepreneurs who want to finance horror movies, they actually kind of got lucky. They, They got in terms of who ended up starring in the movie.
0: And it's not like he tried to exert any creative control over what Dreyer was doing. Dreyer had complete freedom, and he wanted to, to finance this independently. After everything he went through with Joan of Arc and the legal battles that ensued afterwards, he wanted a break from that. He wanted to just make his own movie without – as low budget as possible. There's no sets for this. It's all filmed on location in, in Paris.
1: Almost no professional actors. I mean, it's just a bunch of scrubs.
0: Yeah. he the, the guy that plays the doctor who has such a great look, He someone found on the subway and asked him if, if he wanted to be on a movie, and he just looked at them blankly like, I don't know even know what you're talking He's about. He's incredible. Yeah. He's so good.
1: But what I really like about this period is these strange goat gland movies, as Guy Madden describes them. Back in the late 20s, you had a lot of movies that were originally shot as silent movies, but then they would go in and add a few like musical numbers or scenes with dialogue so they could be released as a sound movie and the reason they're called goat gland movies by Guy Madden is that a long time ago these people in order to give men their boners back they were actually opening people up and surgically implanting goat glands into their bodies in order to try to give them virility again and it did not work and it made people really sick
0: <laughs> yeah that sounds like something that would kill someone yeah
1: but that's why he calls those silent movies that are converted like that goat glands and there are a lot of them That's from the late crazy. 20s but this one feels like it because most of it looks and feels like a silent movie including like these lengthy I mean once again I'm a lore whore and the lengthy descriptions that we see of all the vampire lore in this movie are absolutely riveting but they're basically just glorified intertitles on steroids but there is dialogue so I feel like this is a movie 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 in the best sense of the word
0: he, he didn't really want to make a sound movie. I think he felt pressured because he knew the tide was turning. This is 1930s, and Europe was not prepared for the advent of sound that had swept through America. Uh, so France did not have the technology to do sound movies. They didn't shoot any sound on set. They just had the actors move their mouths along to uh, ger- the dialogue in German, French, and English. And they never even finished the English language version of this. Um, and, and they recorded the sound later in Berlin because Berlin actually had the soundstage uh, to, to do that with. Um, so he he knew going in, let's do as little dialogue as possible, but let's add in as much as we can. And I think it actually enhances this movie that it is still a quote unquote sound movie, because we don't have someone coming in later adding their own score. There's a lot of scenes in this movie that are just almost completely silent, you just have that popping and clicking of of a soundtrack without anything under it of footsteps, of people walking of this pre-recorded sound, and it creates this really moody cool atmosphere of this dude walking around in all these abandoned places with these shadows moving that don't line up with the people with them, and all these just funky cool really shoestring budget special effects that worked so well at the time period of 1931
1: and what was the approach that they used to create that kind of misty look in the photographer the, the photography they used some strange uh, approach
0: they did a test where they held a piece of gauze like three feet away from the lens in order to make it look uh super washed out because originally dryer wanted it to be super contrasty and the the, the camera or the cinematographer is like eh try this, see what you think. And he loved it. So they did the entire movie through a piece of gauze.
1: It makes it so dreamlike and otherworldly and supernatural. Like I mean, I really love the movies by James Whale and Todd Browning made in Hollywood in the thirties. But when it comes to style, atmosphere, tone, Vampire is light years beyond anything being done in Hollywood at this particular time.
0: You could, you could make a solid case that this entire movie is a dream. Because and it even says we're not sure what happened because Alan Gray, our protagonist, w- was basically like a supernatural hunter trying to go through Europe, finding supernatural things. So he's been so steeped in the in the lore, he falls asleep. He dreams that a man comes into his room and leaves a package saying to be opened upon my death. Then wanders out and somehow finds the man die, uh, at the hands of of some spookiness. So you could make the case that he has dreamed this entire thing, that he is so steeped in this that he it's his imagination getting away from him and he even falls asleep later in the movie and is very ineffective as a protagonist yeah
1: but i love that he's basically a nerd he's a he's a supernatural nerd he loves the cult he loves folklore and he's just traveling around on kind of like a, a supernatural vampire vacation trying to discover forgotten lore and sure enough
0: he hits the fucking mother load and I, I i love that and he doesn't even kill the vampire basically a no-named kind of servant of the house finds the vampire who happens – because there's a book that he's finding – he, again, he, he happens to find this house. The the patriarch dies. One of the daughters is gravely ill and has mysterious bites on her neck. Um, and there's a few uh, weird characters he's met along the way, a, an executed criminal with a peg leg, the the amazing-looking mustachioed doctor, and this mysterious woman uh, – Marguerite is her name, I believe – who in this book that he's reading about vampires happens to have the same exact name of a vampire that haunted a village that was already dispatched with. Uh, and after the vampire died, everyone mysteriously returned to health. So after the doctor uses his blood to to try to revive this, this dying daughter, and it comes to one of the greatest lines I think I've ever heard, um, where, where Alan Gray, who is at the brink of passing out, says, my blood is missing. And the doctor responds with, don't be silly, it's just over here. It's like, <laughs> A good, at just me over there. <laughs> that's classic. It, it's such a good, like dark comedy bit. Like no, that's like worry. fearless
1: <laughs> vampire killers. Like that, that you're you're at that level of comedy.
0: And so after he's passed out from blood loss. Uh, He has this terrible vision of of being taken away by these 'er ne'er-do-wells in a coffin buried alive, basically. It's a brilliant
1: sequence. The camera's inside the coffin looking through that pane of glass, and you get this—it's such a terrifying, claustrophobic moment as the coffin's being carried, and we're looking out of the coffin. And then you get that great close-up of his face with he's just completely wide-eyed with terror. It's some of the most gorgeous stuff I've ever seen.
0: Yet he does learn a piece of information that is crucial, that that the, the other daughter, the one that has not been bit by the vampire yet, is being held captive by the doctor and is able to save her because of his vision. But while he's having this dreamlike vision, the, the, the servant is finding out where the vampire is and getting the stake and bur- bursting into the coffin, all that fun stuff. And I think what makes this movie very interesting is the vampire is barely seen possibly not even there was well, a classic
1: misdirect you think it's the doctor the whole time or at least i did the first time i saw it and i was like oh of course he's gonna end up being the vamp but he's the servant he's every vampire needs a good servant who can operate during the day etc and you know line things up into their advantage and the way the doctor goes out holy shit that death scene is just grim as
0: fuck and, they wanted, and the, the German censors wanted it cut because he is trying to run away because the, the vampire has died, and now the servants are, are being dispatched with, like the executed criminal. He, he falls down the steps. You don't even see it. You just hear this horrible shriek. You turn around, he's dead on the floor, which is great. And As he's running away, he was originally supposed to run away and uh, drown in a swamp, but they couldn't find one. They found a mill instead and came up with this— great death scene where he gets locked in the chamber no one hears that he's in there and the flower just starts pouring down on him as he gets buried alive
1: yeah remind me wasn't there a scene like that uh, in The Witness where a guy dies like in a corn
0: uh, silo Despite the fact that that is a Philly movie, I've never seen Witness. Oh,
1: interesting. Gotcha. I haven't seen it in a long time, but I it as a kid, because I was obviously a big Harrison Ford fanatic, but I remember one of the bad guys being left in a corn silo, and they drop it down in there. And of course, yeah, you could try to create a little pocket with your hands or your shirt or whatever, but if you're being surrounded gonna by flour, one. the flour is going to get up in your lungs, and yeah, it's a it's a slow, awful, brutal death but he deserves it. But man, when it comes to a great vampire moment, so you know, a lot of people love sharing clips of Bella Lugosi or Max Schreck. One of my favorite vampire moments is of the girl in bed with these evil, devilish, maniacal close-ups of her eyes. She has one of the scariest expressions I've ever seen on a human face. And once again, it's if you like his use of close-ups and Passion of Joan of Arc, those close-ups are absolutely being put to the same use here, just to a very different effect.
0: Talk about three completely different movies that that were almost made in in succession. There was only one movie between *Master of the House* and *Passion of Joan of Arc*, which I have not seen, but the, the I, but but yet you can still see a style kind of a throughway here, even though he's trying to employ more tricks than he wouldn't the other oh. Different kinds of tricks, less more, more flashy tricks here that it's are like really Melies,
1: effective. Like like, in terms of like he's experimenting with the form, with like shadows and human bodies kind of going their separate way. Almost like Peter Pan in a lot of ways, and then finding the way to come back together. But the shadow play in
0: this is delightful. Yeah, I, I if if any movie could feel like a like a carnival haunted house it's this movie there's something about it that's so playful and stylish i would love to just like have a party and have this playing in the background i feel like if you played this in the background at like i a, have a done halloween, that. i've been there you've done, done
1: that. that halloween like oh four oh five and i still live in la i was going out in koreatown a buddy of mine had a house over there and a bunch of us were meeting up over there but we were pre-gaming kind of getting I think we were even drinking fucking absinthe. We were using like the sugar yeah. cubes and the fire. We were, I and mean, we were getting shit faced, but we wanted to have movies playing in the background. And so first we had nightmare and street playing, but I was like, guys, this movie is atmospheric and weird as hell. It, you don't need to really pay attention, but you'll just, anytime you look up and look at it, it'll be pleasing to the eyes. So we threw in vampire and it, Perfectly set the tone.
0: Yeah, I, and I feel like if you do that, people are, are one by one going to just get sucked in because it is so atmospheric. It is so moody, and like you said, you, you don't need to follow along with it to know what's going on. It is, it, it is pure carnival ride.
1: And so many it's, great it, shots. Like you know, you're always posting gifts from this movie. But whether it's like it, the person yeah, digging out like yes. the the grave or like the skull popping out, or the guy with the giant scythe sitting by mm-hmm. the water. I mean, just there. This movie is just overflowing with iconic shots.
0: Mm -hmm. Even the title, it it just like, as it just warbles into frame, vampire. It makes you high.
1: Now I mentioned this in the pre-code Hollywood part two and in part one, how something about early thirties title cards, the opening of the movie, I feel like I'm taking drugs. They give me so much pleasure just seeing the weird look and style of the way they present the movie. But the first like 10 seconds of this flick, absolutely just fill me with delight.
0: Yeah. And, and again, another short movie like the whole what seventy-two minutes. Yep, it's delightful the whole way through. Even though it's it's uh, death and gruesomeness along the way, it's it's still completely and utterly fantastic. And I, I don't know. I I would love to just experience what it must have been like filming this. They they all lived all oh, apparently what was not the most fun filming experience. They were all living in the chateau where the. Uh, where the sisters the what the one haunted by the vampire's bite were living, and it was not the uh, the the most warm or uh, dry place to be spending. It was and horror a couple, films are hell
1: to make, like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Evil Dead, etc. I mean, just the experiences the crew have are far more horrific than anything being put on the screen. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. But you know what? I'm glad they 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 went through it so I could enjoy it. And, and I th- this was another movie that was a huge flop. I mean, it was up against things like Frankenstein and Dracula, which are from a
1: Beloved source material and got branding recognition and obviously the resources yeah. of Universal to promote.
0: Yeah. And from a thousand feet away, those movies are more flashy. They're, they're, they're more enjoyable. But but I'm going to say that Vampire is a better movie than both of them. As much as I love the Universal monster movies, Vampire is fantastic and was maligned in its day and poorly reviewed. uh People were trying to cut out the the gruesome death scene in the flower. And it was so poorly reviewed that meant that that Carl Theodore Dreyer had a complete mental breakdown and had to go to a mental institution. Very nice. For a short he, should, time. he
1: should have made a documentary about his experiences. I'm sure it would have been delightful. But be, <laughs> apparently people were absolutely terrified by it. It was the first film to receive an H certificate in the u k for huh. h for horrific films which are likely to frighten or horrify children under the age of sixteen years. I want to see every
0: H movie ever. <laughs>
1: <laughs> exactly. Ever Absolutely. But when Tom's talking about the, the making of the movie, um, apparently for the uh, the dank doctor's surgery and its abandoned, dirty look covered in cobwebs, the way they did it is they broke a bunch of jam jars on the floor and left the room shut off for a little over a month to attract various bugs and, and, and insects. <laughs> like you could go in there with special effects or you can just let nature kind of run its course and create your special effects for you. And I, I just love that kind of ingenuity where sometimes the cheapest kind of cleverest solution can end up being the best on, on the screen.
0: I feel like some sort of union would shut that down today.
1: Like whether you're doing something, um, like kind of, uh, unethical toward the, uh, toward the insects, like kind of pump faking them and teasing them.
0: I, I think it's more of an OSHA thing. Like, Oh, you can't go in there without a gas mask now. Gotcha. <laughs> you, you've created a biological, uh, Hazard.
1: Non-union independent films, you can still get away with murder.
0: As long, as long as you got a rich guy that's acting in your movie financing. Absolutely. And he had to go by a pseudonym because his, his, his family didn't want him to become an actor. Absolutely. Go they thought, oh, if I just use a fake name, they'll never know it was me. He was
1: running off to join the circus, basically, and he, yeah. his family – he didn't want to bring any shame to his family. But when it comes to just looking strange and uh, and otherworldly, I, I love his appearance. I love his expressions. I think he does a damn good job. Like Just when he's lying in bed and he's locked the door – but somehow the door just opening on its own opening anyway the the dawning horror on his face really works well and that's that's something I'm totally freaked out about like if you're saying it you think you're safe in your bed and some weird creepy old dude just comes into your room, that's fucking scary
0: yeah hold on, my computer is deciding to open up a Document. Okay. For a second, I thought that it was going to start installing an update and restart, and that was going to be terrible. Oh, gotcha. We are good.
1: <laughs> now, where would you place this film in the context of what some other movies that were being made at the time? Like you've got Luis Buñuel, Lagda, or if that's – I can never pronounce that movie, but uh, the, the <laughs> golden age. And then, of course, you got Jean Cocteau's Blood of a Poet. You've got a lot of really wildly experimental avant-garde movies being made in uh, Europe in the early 30s. Do you think Vampyr belongs in that same family, or is it kind of doing its own thing in another corner of the universe?
0: I, I really think it's doing its own thing in its own corner. I don't think there's another movie quite like this. It, I, And I kind of feel like you could say that about a lot of Dreyer's things. It kind of exists outside of the usual film, film history. Even though he is a contemporary of all those other uh, – of Boonwell, of Cocteau, he's he marches to the beat of his own drum and and something that I just figured out today. It, it always blows my mind when I see like, Oh, these two movies were made the same year going back. Master of the house came out the same year as battleship Potemkin. And for some reason that blows my mind because master of the house feels like this fully formed thing that, 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 that just existed within a, a series of films that had already been built up yet battleship Potemkin feels like a revolutionary uh, display of editing. And yet, Master of the House feels like it's just as competently edited, like almost like Battleship Potemkin came 20 years before it to, to influence it. I, I really think Dreyer does his own thing and does it so well. And I think that's kind of why outside of film nerds, you don't hear him spoken of that much. He is like Ever. the film nerds Ever. director.
1: Yeah, no, e- Even amongst film nerds. I think there are a lot of people out there who've never seen a single one of his movies.
0: Yeah, Maybe Passion of Joan of Arc if it was being shown in a in a, a film class, but definitely not Master of the House, probably not *Vampire*, and certainly not the three other films that we're going to be uh, discussing. There's, there's probably some weirdos out episode.
1: there who have seen *Vampire* that are just horror buffs, and they've, just, they've seen every horror movie out there, and they're finally like, let's look under this last rock, this strange, unusual movie from the 1930s. It wouldn't surprise me if there are a lot of people who are horror buffs, who love and adore Vampire,
0: but have no idea who made it. Probably. And probably those same horror buffs would not be into Passion of Joan of Arc yeah. or Master of the House.
1: No. What about DPs? What DPs is he working
0: with with these movies? Don't remember his name. I'd have to bring that up. The same director of photography that did Passion of Joan of Arc also did Vampire, which are... Rudolf Maté or whatever his name is. I am doing a very bad job of confirming... I've got my IMDb open.
1: Uh, cinematography, Rudolf Mattei.
0: You are much better at remembering names than
1: I am. Well, it's from my days of reading comic books. I'm a lore whore, as they say. I'm a, I like all the minutiae in the detail, but in any case, so yeah, he obviously works with some great DPs, and I think Carl Freund, who became a director in his own right, also worked with them uh, on one of his flicks. Let's see what Carl Freund, uh, Freund like, he directed <laughs> like The Mummy and things like that, but he hmm. also was a DP on like John Hewson's Key, Key Largo, which you and I have discussed, but hang on one sec. So Carl Freund, cinematographer. Oh, shit, he's got 180 cinematography credits because <laughs> he did like the last laugh and stuff like that oh he did michael so he did he so he did work with um dryer there he hmm. must have been kind of part of uh, the german period for for dryer
0: yeah and Rudolf matea went on to hollywood he did things like uh to be or not to be uh, lady from shanghai nice. gilda
1: those are good ones those are all good ones
0: it, it, it's so interesting to kind of see these people that that existed in europe pre-World War II to see who stayed in Europe afterwards and who uh, who went on to Hollywood. Dreyer obviously stayed in Europe and wouldn't make another movie until World War II itself happened. But Yes, yeah, uh, so you
1: made Day of Wrath during World War II, and we'll get to that in our follow-up episode. But Day of Wrath, yes. Goddamn, it's a good movie. I went and saw it at the IFC Center like in early 2000s, and I've, I don't think I've ever— had that same experience again where an audience just seemed like they're on the verge of suicide at the end i remember as we were walking i kind of laughed I was like hey let's all go dancing and someone kind of like chuckled awkwardly but day of wrath had this incredibly overwhelming just depressing effect on the entire assembled uh, masses but it's definitely the it's the movie that i wanted to see and i think day of wrath is definitely one of his essential ones it's probably not as famous as ordet or passion of joan of arc but day of wrath is
0: the shit Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And, and while well, I'm sad that we didn't get to go through basically his entire chronological uh, filmography from this point on, because uh, from Passion of Joan of Arc onwards, he basically just makes one film per decade. Yep. Uh, he, he made two in the 1940s, one of which he's like completely disowned and doesn't want anyone even talking about it. I don't even think he can find it anymore because he's erased its, its existence. Uh, its name is – where did it David... – two people so I, it, there's not even a wikipedia page for it that's how uh, completely lost it is but i'm sure that we can talk more about that in the subsequent episode i am excited that we get to talk about Dreyer twice absolutely instead of just once you're for you the a master longer period of time. at
1: breaking uh, famous directors careers up in a little bite-sized chunks, so we can prolong hey. the ecstasy of exploring their work
0: If it gets me – if it gets my voice out there twice, then I'll do it. If it
1: (laughs) Just don't do it with a director like Raul Walsh where, like, oh, he's got 190 movies. Like, if we break that into five movies at a time, it could take a very
0: long time to uh, work. You could do an entire podcast on him.
1: Yeah. You could just, like, um, we're going to do an episode per movie from start to finish. We're going to go through the teens up through, like, the early 60s, just the Raul Walsh show. And there'd be, like – 50 kind of like mean old bastards who would tune in like yeah roll wall she's macho but they would love you for it oh cool well, any final thoughts on carl dreyer just as a kind of like a, a way of placing a pin in this topic before we uh, dip into it at a later date
0: I, I think we covered that's the thing i'm too afraid of getting too much into it to to, to take away from things we could say in the the part two uh To be announced. But uh, no, I'm just so glad that I finally got a chance to talk to you about his films. He is one of my favorite directors, even if he has a more limited uh, filmography. But these are three. Oh, Master of the House is a good movie. It's probably my least favorite of his films. But both Passion of Joan of Arc and Vampire are among my favorites, both in my top three. So this was, is this was an excellent opportunity to, to wax uh, lyrical about one of my favorite Well, directors. he's one of
1: those guys where I've been keeping him in the back. I'm, I'm always very well aware of my favorite filmmakers or the filmmakers I'm most impressed with historically that I've not yet gotten to on the podcast, and I know which ones I want to get to, but the question always is, who is the appropriate dance partner to tackle these topics? And when I find someone who's obsessed, I'm like, all right, well, then that's clearly the dance partner. Like I'm not going to shove Preston Sturgis down someone's throat. But Preston Sturgis had never been tackled on the podcast. And so, I, so I'm keeping a, a kind of a mental log of things that I want Wrong Real to get to. And Wrong Reel will continue to exist until I have tackled all those filmographies that I want to get. It's almost like this is going to be my little statement on the most important chapters in film history. So I was thrilled that we finally got to open the door on Carl Theodore Dreyer because he was unexplored territory for the podcast up
0: until now. And I will credit you because... Uh, up until fairly recently, within the past like three or four years, I had only seen Passion of Joan of Arc, and it was your episode on The Witch where you were talking about Ordet in comparison to ah, that film. Was like, oh, look how smart I am. I need to start digging into his sound works yeah. uh, because I'd only seen his one silent masterpiece up until that point. So I credit you with really getting me uh, – to be a a rabid fan of him like I am today.
1: Yeah, I watched Ordet twice. Criterion has this great box set that came out in the early 2000s, and I rented it from Laser Blazer on Pico Boulevard in L.A. back in the day. And uh, (coughs) I just ended up watching that and none of the others in the box set. And now I'm like, well, goddamn, I should have watched Gertrude at that time while it was readily available. But now, sadly, all these movies are very difficult to find.
0: I'm hoping they put out a Blu-ray set soon. I I have a U.K. set that has Master of the House, uh, Day of Wrath, Ordet and Gertrude in it, which is why I I assume like, oh, everyone has access to these films. No, just people that uh, are dumb like me and ex- import things from foreign countries – so that I can have as much uh, movie watching potential as possible. When are
1: you going to start a series of YouTube videos where you go systematically through your entire collection, just kind of fondling all your Blu-rays very affectionately and speaking your piece about why they belong in your collection? Because I feel like you could easily make 100, 200 videos just talking about all the various films. And it's almost like your own criterion closet. And you can just be Mm -hmm. pulling things out and just, you know, one or two sentences about why those movies are in the
0: collection. That is a daunting task. I I do feel like a lot of channels do exist out there already where people hold up their criterions and talk about them. It's Like I haven't watched this yet, but I like the box. <laughs> uh, I I don't want to to it's like jump boys into an with oversaturated. Figures. Exactly. I don't want to jump too much into an oversaturated market as is. And, and my own, if I had a better editing computer now, my 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 imac which is now 10 years old has died many years ago if i had a better editing setup then i would perhaps be more tempted to do something along those lines but who knows who knows what the future will bring
1: gotcha well the future will definitely be bringing carl theodore dreyer part two at some point down the road but can't thank you enough for pitching this topic can't thank you enough for coming back on board and yeah it's been like three or four months since your last appearance so uh always a pleasure getting the great dave eves to rant and rave about some old movies on wrong reel
0: I am. I am happy to be back and uh, happy to return in the future, whenever uh, we get more dryer available uh, via any means. Rest in peace, Filmstruck, where most of his films could have been found up until today. Absolutely.
1: Well, where where can people find you online? If they want to geek out about movies.
0: If you want to geek out about movies with me, which you can always do, I am at Cinema versus Dave on Twitter. Uh, also, Cinema versus Dave at. Uh, on Letterbox that is Cinema vs Dave. I'm currently digging through some Looney Tunes box sets where I am uh, causing waves, saying that D- Daffy Duck is the greatest cartoon character of all time, That's which that is, is fair.
1: Especially the I, I, early I, I, Daffy Duck, were, it was so fucking weird where he would like, woohoo, 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 like we do the, like, these strange sounds and he had like the round head and he would kind of bounce around in his head. He was a completely different character when he was first introduced compared to what he eventually became, this kind of surly, kind of sour rival to Bugs Bunny.
0: See, I like the surly, sour rival. I, I love how arrogant and egotistical he is, despite the fact that he never wins. He, he always believes he is deserving of winning. And something about that that like that just complete inability to recognize his true talents and who he really is within the hierarchy of the Looney Tunes universe is what really I think makes him shine. Especially in something like Duck Amuck, where where he is being torn to shreds by the animator. Yeah, and turns out to be uh, Bugs
1: he, Bunny. Ain't I a stinker? Just, yeah. yeah.
0: And, and yet yet he believes that he is the star of the show, even if he cannot uh even control his own vehicle to stardom
1: it's one of the best short animated films of all time you know breaking the fourth wall breaks within fourth wall breaks etc but Daffy Duck just having a fucking meltdown on the screen falling to pieces going insane and it's just Bugs Bunny fucking with him the entire time and even as like a three-year-old it's still
0: astonishing to watch it's so delightful and Bugs has no gain other than just having a laugh at him, yeah. and and yet it, it completely destroys Daffy Duck. That's amazing. That 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 is cinema. Well, we
1: uh, Looney Tunes has also never been tackled on this podcast, so we'll put a pin that in that is a,
0: for a, 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 that a later is a, day. A, a massive topic, but
1: uh, they only made a few thousand of them, not that many. Exactly.
0: There, there's a few Blu-ray box sets out there which which contain some of the probably the more famous ones, but now that I've gotten back on that bandwagon after watching Space Jam, which is a Bonkers movie. I cannot believe that. I saw that in the that theater in fruition. college. I saw that. Oh, man. I was eight when that came out, I think. Yeah. Eight or nine. Yeah, it's not, not, not a good movie. New, new, but it is. It is crazy that it exists. I, I can appreciate its existence from that uh, 90s hubris. You, you will never get another uh, age of Hollywood hubris within making movies like that like you did in the 90s. The age of water worlds and uh, judge shreds and space jams. Yeah.
1: Well, I, saw, I, saw, I saw I saw all these films, but going back to the whole Looney Tunes thing, a great way to break out pieces of it is to find certain directors who were part of the crew, like Bob Clampett and people like that. Like, all right, well, let's just watch the Bob Clampett Looney Tunes and so on. And then you start to see, oh, this director had his own thing in spite of the fact they're all working with the same sandbox and the same characters. There are different different directors uh, accomplishing different things. So yeah, I find that whole period of animation in the 30s and 40s to be the golden age of animation. There's so many brilliant things to uh, to uncover.
0: Agreed. And, and obviously, uh, Chuck Jones is bringing his own style and a very modern look to it. And especially, he, he I would say he's really coming more into his own in the 50s. But I I think I'm gonna have to prefer the 30s and 40s stuff.
1: Yeah, it's just weirder.
0: It, it's like it just yeah, it's it
1: is more adult oriented. Probably a little more on the racist side of things. If everyone's on, you if like, oh my. God. God, I can't believe this was shown in theaters, but...
0: Uh, one of my favorite bits, not to get too far into Looney Tunes in a Carl Theater Dreyer episode, uh, it's uh, the, the, the one called A Tale of Two Kitties with these two cats that are clearly based on Abbott and Costello. And uh, the, the Abbott character tells the Costello character, Oh, uh, make sure you get give me the bird. And the Costello character says, I'd give him the bird if it wasn't for the Hayes office. Oh, Wow. Damn! And like, oh, that's some that's some media savvy there. If I was a little kid, I never would have got yeah. that. No, that, that's <laughs> that was that's for adult. true film nerds. I know.
1: <laughs> Hang on, let me cough up my lungs and die here for a second before I do the concluding concluding. <coughs> I can't even say it.
0: Concluding remarks.
1: <laughs> mm. All righty. Well, we hope y'all enjoyed this topic. Definitely hunt down Carl Theodore Dreyer's Flicks, you will be absolutely stunned and delighted no matter how much you might be interested in silent movies or horror movies or whatever. He's definitely he's just one of those guys where he deserves to be mentioned amongst the great legends of this craft. And sadly, apart from a very, very small population of diehard film nerds, he seems to be largely unknown. So hopefully this podcast has been a, a minor victory in the battle to preserve his legacy. But you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, my personal profile at Colbrax. And if you want to hear me raining and raving about movies and TV shows, you can check out my, uh, my, YouTube channel Geekin' with James Hancock. I just reviewed the new Gaspar Noé movie climax last night. So you can find my thoughts there, but can't thank you enough for listening to this podcast, but more importantly, as always onwards and upwards.
0: It ain't like it used to be, but, uh, it'll do. You know how to whistle, don't you, Steve?
1: You just put your lips together and
0: blow.